0: Back in 1984, a guy named John Cougar Mellencamp went down into his basement, got on a typewriter, and cranked out one of his most enduring songs. It was a song about growing up in a place called Seymour, Indiana. Y'all know what this song is? I was born in a small town. Everybody knows that song, okay? Come on. Great song. Uh, Anybody here born in a small town? I know we got at least a few. I was born in Cameron, Texas, population 5,500. Of course, that was that was a long time ago. Cameron has grown to 5,523. It's a small town. I went to college at Mississippi State University in the great big old town of Starkville. You know, a lot of people make fun of Starkville for being small, but one of these days we're going to get a target and we're going to shut everybody up. All right? We've been waiting on that target since the mid '90s. One of these days, it's going to it's going to happen. You know, small towns are great. They really are. There's so much to like about a small town, but they can easily be passed over and looked down on and forgotten. A lot of times, kids grow up in a small town. They can't wait to shake the dust off of their feet and go to the big city, right? I don't want to get out of this town. Um, it's, it's something interesting about the book of Colossians. One of the things that makes the book of Colossians really fascinating Col- the town of Colossae is in what we now call Turkey. It was at one time a big, significant place. But by the time the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians about A.D. 60, the town of Colossae had shrunk down into almost absolute insignificance. It was the definition of a small town. In fact, it's been said that of all the letters that were written in the New Testament, this is the least significant place of them all. Colossians is the one we would not expect to find in the New Testament because it was the the smallest of all the places on the map. Paul is writing this this letter to the church in this town, but he had never actually been there because no major roads led there. That Paul, on his missionary journeys, if you read through the book of Acts, what we're reading right now through the Bible reading plan, you never see Colossae show up in the book of Acts. You see surrounding cities, Ephesus specifically, which was nearby, but you don't see this town right here. As far as we know, Paul never went there. The apostles... Never made a trip to Colossae. And what's interesting also is that if you look on the map today, right now, you don't find Colossae there. It doesn't even exist anymore. The town literally faded out of existence. Uh, Some scholars have said that if not for this letter right here in the Bible, we would never even know the town existed at all. Now, I give us the background right there because I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge, not just today as we look at this book, but always that God is not limited by anything, by any human reality. God can make any small thing significant. Amen? The Lord doesn't need us to be big and impressive for Him in order to do His work and accomplish His will. And I think this letter is is proof of that. The letter to the Colossians, the fact that this letter was written to such a small church in such a small town, and yet it contains some of the biggest and most wonderful truths in the entire Bible. Um, not only is Colossae small but you know Paul is writing from a prison cell Paul is writing from Rome in prison everything about the formation of this letter is working against its existence the fact that we still have this letter and are reading it almost 2,000 years later it doesn't make any sense based merely on human reality there's something divine about this this tiny town this tiny church this, this imprisoned apostle, and yet here we have the book of Colossians. God is not limited by size, not by circumstance. God's not limited by you or by me, and therefore we have this book here to read and delight to in together. So let's take a look at what Paul wants to say, not just to this tiny church, but to us here in, uh, in, this, uh, in this room today. Paul speaking to the Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. What Robin just read for us, he says, he greets the church. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, Timothy who was with him, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Uh, When Paul calls himself an apostle, that word literally means a sent one, one who is sent by Jesus Christ. And so when Paul Mentions his apostleship here. He's doing it, on one hand, he's doing it to express his authority, that Paul is writing as one who has authority, one who was uh, directly um, brought to salvation by Jesus. We see that in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was, was um, revealed, the, the, the gospel and Jesus was revealed to him on the road to Damascus, and that Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ specifically to reach the Gentile peoples. This is the Colossians, mostly Gentile. But Paul's authority as an apostle means more in in Colossae than we might think. What we're going to find as we read through this book, we don't really see it today, but as we go through the letter to the Colossians, we come to realize that, that this church was being fed a tremendous amount of false teaching. It was all over the place, and that was not uncommon in the early church. It happened everywhere. But Paul is declaring up front That as an apostle of Jesus, I'm here to tell you what's real and what's true. That's why I'm writing this letter, to confront and correct some of what you've been hearing. But then also as an apostle, as one who is sent out with authority, you see Paul right here is speaking not just with the authority of Jesus, but with the heart of Jesus. He's writing in love. You see what he says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Um, this is a short point, but it's important. The Apostle Paul, I mentioned this, had never been to Colossae, and yet he's writing to them as family. He's addressing them as family. Now, this is a family that he's never met, but he addresses them, even though they are strangers, he talks to them as brothers, as brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is important for us to recognize, that God is our Father, right? We, we probably know that. We probably address Him as Father. I hope you do. But when we say God is Father, God is the Father of a massive, diverse, wonderful, worldwide family. God is not just my Father, specifically, individually. God is the Father of everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. That means that you and I, we will spend eternity with a family. Not just with a great big group of random people in heaven, but we will be, are now and forever will be, a family of God. We will spend eternity with the people in this room, yes but also with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. We will call them our brothers and sisters. And see, this is what the church is by definition. That's why Paul greets them as the faithful brethren. So my, my temptation often, maybe yours, is to individualize Christianity all the time, to make it more about me than it is about us. And I just want to encourage us as we walk through Colossians that we fight that temptation at every turn. That when Paul is speaking to this church, he's not speaking merely to individuals. He's not just saying you, he's saying y'all, all right? Paul would have been a great southerner, okay, because he's constantly speaking in the plural, writing in the plural, not just to the individual, but to the church. And so I want to encourage us, fight this temptation to always want to make the application just about me. It's not. It's about us. It's about all of us together, okay? I'm included. You're included, of course, in that, but it's not just about us. It's about the whole, okay? So Paul greets the brethren, the whole church. And now he begins to glow a little bit. Do you see this in verse 3? Paul doesn't know these people, and yet he's proud of them. And he's thankful for them. He says it in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, or for y'all, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I don't know if you caught it right there. I had to to double take. Paul mentions the big three right here. Faith, hope, and love. The big three. Faith, hope, and love. That very famous chapter, we hear it a lot of times at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You may be familiar with that verse. It's such a common thread throughout the New Testament that the quality of a Christian, of a Christian church, is meant to be these three things. Faith, hope, and love. What Paul is doing though right here, he's he's complimenting the Colossians, yes, but he's not really giving them the credit. You notice what he's saying when he says faith and hope and love, he's talking really about what God has done in their lives. The credit goes to God. He says, "We give thanks to God for these things, your faith, your love, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, the hope reserved for you in heaven." Who is it that reserves your hope in heaven? It's not you. It's not me. It's God. God's the one who lays that up for us. Now, we're going to see this more when we get to chapter 2. But a big part of the false teaching that had infiltrated the church of Colossae and so many of the churches in the New Testament and the church today, by the way, it went kind of like this. This is how it sounded. It's good for you to believe in Jesus. Nobody was against that, or most people weren't against that. It's good for you to believe in Jesus. But you can't really be saved unless you perform certain rituals and achieve certain levels of spirituality and obey certain rules of behavior. In other words, Jesus, Jesus all by himself, is not enough to save you. You've got to fill in the gaps. There's more to be done. Um, That's what Paul's combating here. Now, if you've ever spent much time on the Internet, you've probably seen... uh, Articles and blog posts that go like this. I'm so sick of these, but they're everywhere. Something like this. 14 things all successful people do before 7 in the morning. Have you seen a blog post like this before? 6 ways you've been washing your dishes wrong the whole time. 12 things you've got to stop eating immediately if you want to live to be 90. These kind of things, they're all over the internet. We live in this very strange, never-ending cycle of self-improvement. And self-optimization, we're always trying to optimize and have our best life, right? Well, y'all, in a way, that's what the false teachers were doing in the New Testament. That's what false teachers still do. We can easily fall into this trap. To, to look to Jesus and acknowledge Jesus, yes, but ultimately say he's not enough. And therefore, here are the 41 things you better do if you really want to be a good Christian. Here are the 12 things all successful Christians do before 8 in the morning, Right? We fall into this trap of thinking Jesus is great, but he's not enough ultimately to save me. I've got to fill in the gaps. But you notice the emphasis Paul gives to the work of God right here early on. We give thanks to God, verse 3. Where does the credit go? Your faith is in Christ, verse 4, and that's enough. Even the fact that he says you have a love for all the saints. That is, we'll find out, a fruit that comes ultimately from the work of Jesus in their life. Jesus is the one producing that fruit. And then lastly, he says the hope that is laid up for you, reserved for you in heaven. God's the one doing that. God's the one who gets all the credit. God is enough. And so there's a simple point, really, but here in the end, early on in Colossians 1, Paul is saying something to us that we've got to take to heart. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, it is entirely the gracious work of God in your life, 100%. Not even 99.9, and you've got to fill in the last little bit. No, it is absolutely the work of God, a work that you and I can add nothing to, a salvation that we cannot improve upon. And in fact, if we try to improve upon it, we actually sour it and make it worse. There's nothing we can add here. That's why, listen, if there's any good thing in you, if there's any good spiritual fruit that you bear in your life, your response should always be, We give thanks to God, our Father. He is the source, the giver of every good gift. He's the one who animates any good thing in my heart. Right? Paul affirms that for them straight away. There is no Jesus plus anything here. And now Paul's going to remind them. He talks about where they are today, but now he's going to backtrack and remind them of how they got there. And this is important, okay? I'm moving the wrong way, aren't I? He's, he's, going, he's going to backtrack from, from your perspective. He's going backward, okay? So he starts in the present. Now he's going to go backward, okay? And he's going to explain to them how they became the way that they are today. And y'all, this is really the heart of the message. I want you to focus in here again with me in verse five, verse five through, through six here. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Um, Paul says it really simply here. He says, the gospel of Jesus, the word of truth, came to you. That's how you got where you are. Just as it's gone out into the whole world, or at least the known world at that point, and eventually the whole world, everywhere it goes, Paul says, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. In Jerusalem, where it started, eventually in Rome, eventually in Jackson, Mississippi. Can you even imagine these New Testament Christians? Of course, Jackson, Mississippi didn't exist back then. But they, as far as we know, they didn't even know there was such a place as North America. They didn't, the, the fact that the gospel has reached literally to the ends of the earth, I just can't imagine that I, it could have been a hope for the, for the early Christians, but this is the reality that we now live in because the gospel has gone out into the world and has, has, has uh, bore fruit and it's increasing. We're the beneficiaries of what Paul's talking about right here. And he says, ultimately, we give all the credit to God for that. But it's not just that the gospel goes outward. You notice what he says in verse 6? He says, just as the gospel has been doing in you, among you, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So we have a uh, a two-sided coin here. When Paul talks about the gospel, there's an outward spread. There's also an internal reality, both at the same time. Uh, Y'all, back in October, early October, Jennifer and I were in our house, and we started hearing these popping sounds, like popcorn in the microwave very strange. I've started thinking, what's going on with our house? Then we realized. It took a few minutes, but then we figured it out. The great big oak tree behind our house had started dropping its acorns on our roof and on our patio. Thousands of them. My goodness. I mean, at least a hundred a day, it sounded like, just popped. Pop Pop like popcorn in the microwave, literally, it was that it was that um, annoying to us, and it just kept on going for weeks and weeks, it felt like it kept on going. that thing kept dropping a whole bunch of these. Now you may' not be able to see this from where you're sitting, because they're small. But I went out in the backyard today, and they're still there, by the way, I didn't do anything about them. I mean they're still there. Um, you know, all, all 20,000 acorns. But I, you know I think about an acorn, what it is. I mean, we don't maybe think about it this way, but it's a seed, isn't it? It's a seed. It falls from the oak tree. It Lands in the ground. Maybe a squirrel picks it up, goes, buries it somewhere, and and uh, it gets into the ground. And if the if the elements support it, if there's right, the right soil and water and sunshine, this little acorn going to grow up into what? It's going to grow up into its own oak tree, which is pretty amazing. And it's a seed. Now, here's an interesting thing to think about. Um, how many oak trees are in this acorn? Now, on one level, there's there's potentially there's one oak tree in this acorn. If it gets into the ground and sprouts. It's going to become an oak tree. But at a deeper level, here's something crazy. There's really an infinite potential, an infinite number of oak trees in this one acorn. Because if it does become an oak tree and grow up, it's going to develop its own acorns, thousands upon thousands, year after year, and it's going to drop them, and they can then get into the ground and become their own oak trees. And there is at least the potential right here in what I'm holding in my hands for an entire world of oak trees right here. All right, that's the potential it has. Now, that is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the gospel. Paul says this is how the gospel of Jesus works. It sprouts, it grows, it bears fruit, it bears its own seed from within itself, and it reproduces. The more people who spread the gospel, the more people hear the gospel, the more people receive the gospel all over the world. Even here in Jackson, Mississippi, the gospel has found its way, and now it goes from out of us to other places too, right? There's an outward reality, an outward growth. Now, we're going to come back to that at the end, but Paul says it's not just that it goes outward, it also goes inward. Paul says the gospel grows and increases and bears fruit in you, not just out there, but inside, okay? Now, what does that mean? That the gospel bears fruit and increases in us. Um, I I think a lot of us, I I know this is true for me, but probably for a lot of us, we have approached at times at least, we've approached the Christian life like this. I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus died for my sins. And so by faith in him, I receive his forgiveness and that makes me a Christian, right? And that's all true. And that's wonderful. But now what? Great, but now what? Well, now I guess I need to stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff because that's really what it is to be a Christian, right? I'm sure you've, you've thought that or you grew up around an environment like that or in a home or a church like that, right? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, let's take inventory of what you're doing, stop the bad stuff and do some good stuff, right? And so therefore the gospel of salvation coming to Jesus, that, that gospel, that good news, functions pretty much like a door, okay? Jesus gets you through the door. He forgives your sins and gets you in. But once you've gone through the door, it's basically up to you. It's basically up to me to stop the bad stuff and do the good stuff, because that's what it means to be a good Christian. Now, y'all, for years, I've lived under this assumption that it's simply Jesus getting me in the door, and now it's really up to me to change my behavior, to do what good Christians do. That's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, that's not really what biblical Christianity is at all. We see this, that, that right here at the very beginning of Colossians, for Paul, the gospel is not just what gets you in the door. He's talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He says, it's your whole life. It's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z, I've heard it said. It's the whole thing. The gospel is everything. It's your whole life. That means that Jesus doesn't just give you grace to forgive you sin, to forgive your sins and wish you luck in behavioral modification. Try harder, do better, now that I've let you in the door. No, Jesus' grace also brings transformation to your heart. The only ability we have to change our behavior in the first place doesn't come from within me, it has to come from him. It's not just grace to save us, but it's the grace that changes us. And I think deep down, you know this is true, that you can't transform your own heart simply by trying, simply by trying harder. It doesn't work that way. Only God in his grace can change us. Now, how does this work? Well, Paul gives us a clue in what we've already read. If you go back with me at verse 4, Colossians 1-4, Paul is praising the Colossians. He's very, very happy about where they are in their, in, in, in their, their church, and their life. And one of the things he praises them for, quote, he says, For the love which you have for all the saints. Meaning, Colossians, you don't just love each other in your own little church. You love all the saints. You have love for, prayer for, concern for all the churches in other cities. That means that, that you care about the people who are different than you, not just the Jewish Christians, but also the Gentile Christians, not just the poor Christians, but also the rich. Every single brother and sister in Christ, you have a love for them. And Paul says, that is wonderful. Now, how did that happen, though? How did the Colossians become such a loving people? Do you think they all got saved? And then individually, they sat down and they said, okay, I'm a Christian, that means I need to start loving people. I'm a Christian, and, and to be a good Christian, I've got to love people, right? No, that, that can't possibly be how they became who they were. And we know that to be true, because that's not how love works. You never loved a person more simply by gritting your teeth and telling yourself to do it. That's not how the heart works. No, love has to be cultivated. Love has to come, and especially this kind of love, the love for all the saints... Paul is saying, "This is a unique love that comes from Jesus. This is a divine love. This is not something you manufactured within yourself." Um, Famous verse: Jesus said it to his disciples, John thirteen. He said, "A new command I give you, that you love one another." Now, if he would have stopped there, that would have been a strange verse, because that really wasn't new. I mean, that's that's we have that in the Old Testament: love your neighbor as yourself. But here's what made it new: Jesus says. Just as I have loved you, so you also love one another. The the command to love each other, that command in itself was not new, but it was the quality of the command that was unique. It was not love your neighbor as you love yourself. That is a high standard right there. That's hard to do as it is. But Jesus says, no, I want you to love each other as I have loved you which means this is not human love he's talking about. Ultimately, this is divine love. This comes from a deeper place. This comes from a greater reality that we have to be given, that we can't manufacture. How do you know how much Jesus loves you? If he's setting the new standard. The Apostle Paul said elsewhere, Romans chapter 5, he said, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that we were, while we were yet sinners, while you and I, while we were at our very, very worst, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves us. So, the clearest picture of this divine love of Jesus comes to us where? It comes to us through the gospel, through the good news of what He's done for us, the gospel of His grace. And that's what Paul is commending the Colossians for. You love the saints. You love the saints. But that love is a direct result of the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in you. Do you see that? This is not just human love, this is not just that you tolerate each other and you get along. This is a deep, divine love that the gospel has produced in you. Y'all, that's why if, if, if you read through the letters of Paul, there are 13 of them in the New Testament, almost always we see it like this. Paul will give the church a behavioral command. A command. This is something you need to do. But almost always, those commands are connected to what I would call gospel reminders. Behavioral command... With a gospel reminder. Now, I'll give you an example. This actually comes from Colossians. It's in Colossians 3. Paul says, Forgive each other. Now, we're all familiar with that one. That, that's from Jesus, right? We know that one. Forgive each other. But he doesn't say, Forgive each other, period. In Colossians 3, Paul says, Forgive each other just as the Lord also forgave you. So should you forgive one another. You see that? Behavioral command, Forgive each other. We all know that's right. But it's the source of the forgiveness. It's the foundation for the forgiveness that Paul focuses here on, not just the behavioral command, but do it just as the Lord in Christ also has forgiven you. It's the gospel reminder. That's what animates the forgiveness. That's what changes the heart. Listen, you will never become a truly forgiving person if you simply say, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to forgive. I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to forgive. You may have tried that, I've tried it. This is what I'm supposed to do. I have to forgive. I have to forgive. Jesus said I have to forgive. That doesn't work because you're trying to will something. You're trying to manufacture something from within yourself based on a label. I'm a Christian, therefore I need to be a certain way. No, our forgiveness takes flight. We become truly forgiving when the grace of Jesus who forgave us increases and bears its fruit. That's the fruit. The fruit of forgiveness is the more I look to and devote myself to and, and, uh, and become enraptured by this forgiveness that I've been given, then I'm able to become a truly forgiving person. It's because of what's been done for me that now energizes, motivates, animates true forgiveness. When Paul says you've become loving to the Colossians, he's saying that is a testimony to the gospel's work in your life. Not your will, but Jesus' fruit in you. Y'all, this is why we preach the gospel every Sunday here at Harvest Church. Not because it gets us in the door, and now what? No, because we believe that it's the totality of life. Everything about you and me in our entire lives orbits around the truth of the gospel. And I, I, I don't say this to our credit, but I just say it because it's true. We don't preach the gospel just at the end. To help people be saved. We do that too. But we preach it all throughout, I hope. Always. All the time. Because it is the very foundation of our whole life. That we would not just move past it, ever, but that we would go deeper down into it. That's what Paul is saying. That's how you've become loving. That's how the heart changes. The more that the gospel of Jesus bears its fruit in your life, it's got to increase in you. Y'all, that's what it is to be an oak tree. (laughs) Always year after year, the seed comes from within you and it spreads. The fruit is evident in your life. It's never perfect, of course, but it's evident year after year because there's always more room for the gospel to grow in your life. There's endless potential in you. And that's not to your credit or mine. All right? you're not, you don't have endless potential because you're so great, I'm so great. It's because there's always more space for the gospel to increase. And therefore, there's always more for us to grow in. That's a wonderful truth. If you're not as loving or forgiving as you wish you were, you're not going to will that into existence. You've got to go deeper into what Jesus Christ has done for you. And then he can change your heart. So Jesus doesn't just get you in the door. Jesus is your whole life. That's why he said, John 15, ladies, you looked at this yesterday at the retreat. Abide in me, Jesus says, and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Like a branch torn off of a tree will wither and die, Jesus says, apart from me, you'll do nothing at all. But in me, you'll bear much fruit. Have I beaten that horse enough this morning? Oh, it's so important. It's so important. You know, I mentioned earlier how Paul is working backward here. He starts out early in this chapter. Here's where you are today, Colossians. But then he explains how they got there. The gospel came to you, and it's increasing and bearing fruit in you. Now Paul's going to go even further back. How did you get there? And this is important, too. We see this as, the, as the, our section, at least for today, closes up in verse 7. How did you get there? How did this all begin? He says, Just as you learned it, learned the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Paul's never been to Colossae. How does he know so much about him? Because Epaphras has come and has delivered this message and told Paul how they're doing, right? Now we don't know a lot about Epaphras. Uh, we know very little about him. Here's what we know, or at least what we think we know. Epaphras was from Colossae. That was he was born in a small town, educated in a small town. Um, but one day, Epaphras received the gospel. Not there, not at home. But more than likely, he received it in Ephesus in a nearby city under the preaching of Paul. He became a disciple of Paul. And then Epaphras brought the gospel home with him. He brought it home and he shared it with his neighbors and his family and his friends. And some of them came to faith through the ministry of this man. Remember, Paul never went there. The apostles never went to Colossae. No major roads led to that city. But they didn't need to go to Colossae because God raised up who? Epaphras. Here he is. This guy that we know very little about, and yet he is responsible for bringing the gospel to this little forgotten town. And so Epaphras in this account becomes, at one point there was an acorn, right, that became an oak tree, Epaphras. And that oak tree did not uh, live only for itself, but it, it bore seed, right? Seed, acorns fell from that oak tree and reproduced. That's Epaphras' life. Epaphras shared the gospel. He saw other people come to faith. The gospel increased in him, but it didn't remain with him. He shared it. And y'all, that's another reminder as we close. That's another reminder for me, for you, as to what God desires to do in and through our lives. We talked about this last week at the end of Jonah, that the gospel is not meant merely to bring internal transformation. That's a huge part of it. But it's, it's meant also to bear outward fruit. God saved you. You may not think about it this way, but God saved you in part to get to somebody else. We know that, right? God saved you in part to get to somebody else. We are meant to be links in a chain. We're not meant to be the end of the chain. That what God has done in me and in you, he's given grace to us, we ought to always be praying for, hoping for, seeking opportunities to share that grace with others who do not know him. We're meant to be links in the chain, not the end of the chain. Well, right? Colosse was a town so small that no apostle, as far as we know, ever visited. No major roads led there. Um, other towns around it became big cities, important places, and Colossae eventually faded out of existence. It's not even there anymore. Um, but God achieved his great purpose there, in spite of all that. Um, and that, that serves a larger point here for us as we, as we finish up. God's not impressed with our bigness and our greatness and our, and our achievements. All right. Those things are fine, I guess. But God's not impressed. God, God doesn't need me to be impressive for him to do his will and work. Now, on the flip side of that, another thing that's good news for a lot of us is God's also not limited by our weakness and our deficiencies. You may not feel like you're very big and impressive. You may feel like you're on the other side of the spectrum. God's not limited by that either. There's nothing about us that truly, ultimately, in the end, limits the, the desires for God to work through us all that, all that he desires out of us today is simple faithfulness, a desire to live in the life that he's created for us through Christ Jesus. The power has always been not in us, but in him. It's in his grace. The power is in his grace. And so that needs to be, I think, our prayer as we enter into this book, this letter, that God would make his grace increase in us and bear fruit in us so that we might live the kind of life that he's called us to live, Right? There's an internal transformation that God desires to produce through Christ in your life. And there is an outward manifestation, a link in the chain that God has a desire to reach others through your life because of the good fruit within. That is enough for a whole lifetime right there, y'all. We'll never move beyond that. So let's pray that God would take us deeper down into it. Father, we ask this morning that you would, um, would you expose my heart for us for all of us in this room that that if we if we if we have fallen into the trap of thinking that you died on the cross to get us in the door and now it's up to me to be good father will you will you correct us in that it may not be our fault that may have been what we were taught but i pray today lord that that that, that way of thinking is abolished and that the gospel, the grace of Jesus, takes deep root and truly changes our hearts. We will not become better people on our own. We will not become obedient Christians by trying harder in our own efforts and will. The gospel has to increase and bear its fruit in us. And I pray, Lord, today that we would receive that as good news, that that would take the burden off of us, Jesus said if if we are weary and heavy burdened, we should come to him and he'll give us rest. You said in in 1 John that, that to love you is to keep your commandments and your commandments are not burdensome. Not a burden. And that can only be true, Lord, if you bring the transformation to our hearts through the increase of the grace of Jesus in us. And so, Lord, I pray today that there is a massive weight that we remove from our shoulders. Any any. Um, any illusion that it's up to me to be good and to look the part. And Lord, that we would deepen in our love for and our gratitude for Jesus today. Um, That if an outsider heard about Harvest Church, someone who had never been here, they heard about us, I I do pray, Lord, that with all our flaws and shortcomings, that with, with all my deficiencies, That they would hear a resounding message of love, of fruit, of increase. And that that person would say, thank you, God. Only you could do it. Lord, make that the desire of our hearts collectively. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.